0: You are listening to part two of a conversation between James Martin and Pat Ryan on childhood history and critique, recorded in December of 2014. Would you say, let me ask you a question, though, about, about this shift. Is, is how an article deals with time... Is that the most important, when you, when you say an article needs to be historical, is sensitivity to to time and to uh, historical context and to change over time and to periodization, are those the main issues, do you think?
1: Um, for me, I, I don't know if, maybe I'm just saying it in a different way, but for me, in, in terms of the... The articles that have come in and the books that have been offered for review, if they are are clearly about the literature as opposed to just, for instance, as opposed to how the literature helps us understand the history, Mm -hmm. then I'm not very likely to pursue them because it's a different purpose. Um, if the author is using American literature to help explain, uh, values related to American children and connects it in a concrete way to actual children, that's mm-hmm. fine. That's great. This is less a philosophical thing than a practical thing. I've had, I've had to create a philosophy to cover a practice, a practice in yeah. some ways. Does that make sense?
0: <coughs> well, it does. I mean, I think that's what, it, what everybody has to do. I, I think, um, what I'm trying to get after is this distinction between when is um, when is a piece of literary criticism historical and when is it not? Um, I mean, I think that that's a, that's a difficult distinction.
1: You know, I think maybe a better example is social science. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of social scientists do, and there's lots of studies in various fields on children and youth, and many of them – draw in the past uh, to help uh, populate their evidence in a way. Mm-hmm. And uh, we get a lot of those, too, uh, more so in the past. than I, I haven't had that many come in since I've been chair. There were a few in chair, since I've been editor. Um, there have been a few that came in and were in the pipeline when I, I took over. And have dealt with them, you know, more. Just, that's the editing, not the, not the, not the selection process. Um, um, again, there's gonna be a spectrum and it's gonna be dependent on how, how good the writing is. It's gonna be yeah. about how much space I've got. Maybe there's a couple other articles on that topic. I mean, it's all, I, I, I don't want to make it sound like it's cut and dry. It's very, very subjective as all this sort of thing is. Having said I try to, Having said that, I try to establish some standards that I'm operating on, well, uh, well, and I'm still learning. This is I've only been in for a year. <laughs> I, I think uh, this I think this is dynamite and very
0: refreshing that you're willing to talk about this openly. I mean the bot the bottom line is the the, the uh, journals like this interdisciplinary journals like this are difficult. Yeah. They're difficult to edit because you're confronted with a very a situation where the boundaries aren't crystal clear.
1: You know, I would say that the methodological issues we're, we're talking about here come into play only when there's a question about whether or not this article is ready for the journal. If I get a really well-written article and the reviews are good, and you know, even if it's really social science, that's fine. I mean, I, I, this is not a <laughs> something in which you know. Oh my God, it's not history. Uh, we've had some pretty recent history, uh, not written by historians, and so this is not an absolute, but it is a consideration
0: well you've um, uh, you're you've served uh, most of a, a term as the president of the Society for the History of Children and youth and i I guess as a a, a final question what what do you um, see as the the most important challenges and opportunities for the society as we move forward?
1: I think of the ones we've had all along, uh, which is membership, continuity and membership, mm-hmm. um, which is not just us. This is any any society that is an an added obligation, I think, to folks. and I, Maybe it's changing somewhat, but... My first, you know, we most of us have sort of an, an original society we belong to, the Organization of American Historians or the American Historical Association in the United States, um, or is the Southern Historical Association for me, and I, I go to their conference all the time. I have another society, the Civil War Historian. We all have these these organizations that compete for not our loyalty but our attendance um, mm-hmm. and our. When you get to a certain point in your career, you have time to do that kind of service to a society, um, and so you have to pick your places and, and, and figure out where it is you have the time and resources uh, to participate. Uh, and we're we're a society which has great members have great enthusiasm for the society, but it's not necessarily the first one they have they they, they uh, belong to, mm-hmm. uh, and and so we need to. Develop a critical mass. Well, we have one now, just barely, I think, number of members. They keep going. We gotta keep getting refreshed membership, uh, and, uh, get people to do, uh, the various functions that we, we ask of our members. We have a lot of things going on with book awards and particle awards and program committee and the outreach committee and this and that and the other thing. It's a lot of committees and a lot of people have to serve. I think something that is going to become a real challenges leadership. The founding generation um, were not necessarily really young folks. You were pretty young. A few other people were pretty young. I was sort of middle of the way in my career when things started. Others were and have retired uh, since that time. And And so there needs to be another set of folks taking over some of the responsibilities that people who ran things for the first 10 or 15 years. Again, it's been been very collaborative been a lot of people involved, but there has been a certain element of the usual suspects uh, being called on again and again to serve on committees or on the board and and so forth. And I think that's really the challenge uh, for the future of this, or really any organization, I guess. Yeah, for
0: any nonprofit, um, you know, I think what you're describing is sort of the, the template of the main challenges for nonprofit organizations and that is how, how do you keep membership, dues paying membership uh, high enough to sustain the services that you know are provided. For some organization that means winning grants from government and the primary thing for us is membership and attendance to the conferences. If we're at about 260 members right now
1: we're about 320 right now.
0: We're 320, so yeah. and that's good. I thought that's yeah. a little higher than I thought.
1: Well, so, we'll see what people renew by December 31st. We had about <laughs> 60 people that needed needed to renew since November, but we'll see.
0: That you know that this is going to come out too late then because it takes a while to get these through these episodes through the uh, through the system because this won't air until the late winter. But I mean it three twenty is great. It'd be it would be wonderful if we were above five hundred.
1: Which we might have been for about five minutes at one time. I, I don't think we were ever that big, but uh, it would be great. There's certainly people out there in the fields who would be who we think would benefit, but again, I think it's a matter of their prioritizing their organizations and how many can they belong to reasonably. I think one thing and you and I have talked about this before, one thing that our efforts to be diverse geographically and chronologically and even methodologically in the journal and at the conference means that, well, at any given time, we might speak to certain people, other times we don't speak to them at all. Yeah. So it's not like every issue, unless you really are just fascinated with all elements of the issue of children and youth, not every issue will have something for you. Yeah. I'm a Civil War story and on my other, other side of my life, and... You know, there's a couple of journals that, that I get there, and there's pretty much something in every journal or journal that that speaks to me. That's not be really the case with everybody. Um, in in ours, I don't. This is my sense at least of things, and so
0: I think you're right on. Yeah, I think
1: you're and, right and that's, on. You're, that's not a bad thing as such, but I think it is an explanation somewhat. Um, the limited information we get from doing surveys. Um, both of members and non-members, uh, is that, you know, people say, no, there's no, they literally will just say what I, what I just said. There's not something in the journal for me all the time. Um, it's outside my current research, or I've moved on to other research. Um, and so it doesn't matter to me. We do get, as I think I implied earlier, we do get a number of members who, uh, have a certain project they're working on that includes a chapter that, they probably gave us a paper at one of our conferences. Mm-hmm. They're a member for a couple of years, but that project has passed, it's been published, or they moved on, uh, and uh, they just don't continue because it's not quite as uh, relevant to them as something else they might be doing with their money and their time.
0: I think that on the upside, if we have 1,700 people that are on the network H childhood, you know, if we could get um, – I guess we're talking about less than a third um, to become members of the society. We would be a lot more secure over the long term. Yeah, and and one of the one of the challenges on the leadership side, and this is, I don't know what you can do other than to just say it, uh, both through venues like this and at conferences. You know, you have an opportunity to get involved. Um, I'm going to be. Ask each uh, recruiting uh, in the new year for people to get involved with H Childhood to do to do some volunteer work is what it essentially is. Whether or not it's to take on book review duties, to become a a list editor, um, or to serve on committees, uh, there is an opportunity. I and mean, one of the great things about Shy over the years is if you just you know stuck your nose in. And said, and I'll be involved. You found yourself being able to be part of putting together conferences, um, serving on, 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 on committees that, um, that did very practical things, awarding prizes. I know that's, in, in a sense, that's yeoman's work, but if you, if you don't do that kind of work, you don't have a
1: field. Exactly. I mean, this is the sort of thing that an organization does. And, uh, if you want to have an organization, you need to provide this kind of recognition of the field. Uh, I think we help shape the field through these things, not by coming up with a set of topics and promoting them, but just by rewarding good work in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, these aren't easy jobs. We had, there were 20 articles submitted, there were 30 books, I think, submitted this year for the book prize. We have a huge number of proposals for the conferences every year. It would help if we had more people doing them. So you do it once and you're done for a while because they are ad hoc jobs.
0: And and that's right. And you really don't want the same people to do it over and over again. I mean, just for for obvious reasons, I've served on the paper selection committee twice. Um, And, you know, you do get to make important decisions, but you don't want it to be the same group. You'd like that committee to have a different composition every two years. And that means you do need a critical mass of 20 or 30 people willing to volunteer. Yeah, um,
1: absolutely. And I do think our demographics are such that we we remain a very young organization despite the decrepitude of the founding group. <laughs> um, it's still a very young bunch. And so one thing that I mean, I've been the department sheriff for over 10 years, and, and one thing that you want to protect junior faculty from is too much service work. Yeah. Uh, and I think that does reduce the number of people that we can fairly ask to do things, unless they volunteer, unless mm-hmm. they seek out this work. Uh, because we are we are younger. Um, I think we have people with young families. Uh, as Remember, just to think of a very practical reason people don't do things. Um, it's hard to imagine doing some of this work when you have a three and a five year old at home, um, and 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 so they're making choices all the time too, and we're trying to intersect with with their lives somehow. Um, and so there's there's lots of reasons for this being a particular challenge, I think, for us.
0: This I'll, I'll cut this from the thing, but I got to tell you a story. Uh, I think this is when we were headed to Milwaukee uh, fall. Paula Fast was the uh, uh, program chair, and
1: mm-hmm. I don't know if
0: that was 2005 or 2003.
1: For the very first one, I don't think it would have been the second one, I think. So it would have been 2005, because we're here in 2001 and five, I think.
0: Okay, maybe, we, no, we were going to UMBC then.
1: Okay, that was Chris
0: was hosting it. It was 2003. Anyway, so we were doing that, and... and uh, and uh, I was on the selection committee, if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, you talk about having young kids. I was assistant professor at the University of Texas at Dallas, and I had um, uh, printed out all the uh, proposals, right? And the problem we made a, we kind of had to learn as as we went along. We didn't make it, you know, crystal clear that you needed to propose as panels you need to put your own panels together. So we've all had almost all individual submissions. And then we were, <laughs> we were stuck with, with about um, 200, 180 or 200 single papers that we had to organize into panels and also get commentators and chairs. So oh Paula my says, God. I
1: don't remember this at all.
0: Well, Paula got on the horn basically, and I can't believe she did all this work. I mean, This is where you get to know people is how much work they're willing to do. She just she just said, I will call people and get them to be chair and commentator. And I said, all right, well, I'll do my best to try to present a a possible organization of of the panels. And then we work it through. And we had, I think, a couple of people doing this independently. And then we were going to see what we came up with. Well, I had them
1: all over
0: our bedroom at home. In stacks. This is 200 abstracts. And uh, I went out. I don't know. Uh, I left the room and and went out. I had a, a uh, an 18 month old baby and a and a, a three year old baby. And I think I went out to stop the three year old from drowning or something. And <laughs> you know, brought her in and and got her kind of set up doing something. And the 18 month old was in the bedroom. Oh my God! And Jack had reorganized all of the panels and ripped up several of them. <laughs> so wow. I was just—I was like, "Oh my God, what am I gonna do?" So I just reorg—I just got back to work and reorganized them. And,
1: well, and I guess the he had point- an opinion about how you'd organize them to start
0: with. <laughs> exactly. Maybe Jack did a better job.
1: Dad, this sucks. We, we can't let this stand.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's one of those things where, um, so I, I I definitely know what it is to have a young family and to have all of these competing, com- competing demands on your time. But I guess what I would say to, to people who are going through that, um, you know, getting engaged can also lead to you, being able to focus and do the the work that you need to do to succeed.
1: Well, I think especially once you I mean once you get tenure. I mean, I think for us here, and I don't think we're unlike a lot of places. I mean, we don't expect anyone to have done anything outside the department or the college for service. Yeah, and they haven't had time anyway. But I think the associates um, also tend to hunker down sometimes uh, mm-hmm. and. What I like to call is being engaged in the, this is, I didn't make this up, I don't think, but, but being engaged in the profession at all levels. So that means publishing mm-hmm. lots of different kinds of things, um, participating in the ways that we're talking about, which I think are related directly. You might, you might never co-author an article anybody you meet. You might not end up, uh, um, using, taking scholarship or, uh, what am I trying to say? Your scholarship might not be something that is affected by this, this activity, but it's all part of being a historian, mm-hmm. uh, being an academic. And, and really, after tenure especially, I think, is when you should start looking outside your your world, you know, your university. Um, uh, and it's more fun, for one thing. I mean, that's really the – really, that is it. It's more fun to, to, to be in the profession if you're in the profession uh and not sliding through, you know, and not doing uh not not engaging at all those levels. Um, I've not been involved with a conference a regular conference that's as intense as ours. I mean people really go to the sessions and they ask a lot of questions. I mean we've pretty much done away with having commentators on panels because mm-hmm. we want to make sure we leave room for discussion. Um, we still we are sticking with this 90 minute session, which seems really short to me, because we have so many proposals we want to work them in. Um, uh, people are just sort of are, are crowding to be at the con- crowding in to be at the conference, uh, and there's nothing more invigorating than one of our conferences. I don't think they're tiring. You know, you get worn out uh, by the amount of thinking you have to do. Yeah. Um, and, I, and it's an unusual that's unusual I think for a regular conference I can see sometimes ad hoc conferences about a certain topic be like that but um, ours is like that all the time I experience
0: it that way too and I think that's something to be really proud of I think that whatever we're doing to create that we got to try to keep doing it
1: and you know and that's kind of the basic thing an organization does I don't there's there's no uh, there, there's no doubt that that will continue. There's those are the things we do that maybe we can't sustain if we don't get, I think, um, I mean, there's nothing going to happen anytime soon, but uh, we have a lot of irons in the fire uh, as an organization. The Journal will certainly survive. We have plenty of subscribers, you know, for, the, for our contract with the press. The conference will absolutely survive because it's so popular. It doesn't quite pay for itself, you know, but it's not, you know, um, It it can sustain itself, more or less. Um, And and those things can continue no matter what happens. I think for some of the other activities we've decided to do, partly as a way of attracting more members uh, and for reflecting and representing, really, the field, uh, we'll have to uh, – we need to get a few more people that are able to take on uh, some jobs.
0: You have been listening to a conversation Between James Martin and Pat Ryan on Childhood History and Critique recorded December 2014 for the Society for the History of Children and Youth.